from Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. You are listening to Global Frequencies, Diverse Province, Diverse Voices. This program is presented by the Association for New Canadians and CHMR 93.5 FM with funding from the Community Radio Fund of Canada. This program is available on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and more. Welcome to yet another episode here on Global Frequencies. We are on episode 9 and I'm your friend and host Nabila Qureshi and today we are celebrating and bringing attention to International Women's Day which is marked annually on March 8th. Now according to the International Women's Day website, this is the day that celebrates the social, economic, cultural and political achievements of women. It is also a day that marks a call to action for accelerating and lobbying for gender parity. In today's episode, we are in conversation with two strikingly phenomenal individuals in our community. They are Zainab Jarrett and Sarojni Ramnarayan Lang. Zainab Jarrett is the executive director for We Care Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. She's also worked with the Multicultural Women's Organization of Newfoundland and Labrador. She's also quite well known for being the owner and operator of the multi-ethnic food kitchen, and you may definitely have seen her at many events held at the farmers market since 2008. Now Sarojni on the other hand is someone who you will definitely have heard if you've tuned in to 93.5 CHMR FM. She is the host of Caribbean Connections, where she explores reggae and chutney vibes, cricket news, poetry, and has conversations with guests that have connections or stories towards with and about the Caribbean. First up, Zainab Jarrett and her story of growing up in Nigeria, coming to Newfoundland to study folklore and working for her foundation. So today on Global Frequencies we have Zainab Jarrett, a very well-known individual in not just the city of St. John's but perhaps across the province for her tirelessly passionate work in a number of uh, areas such as the Tambola Festival, the We Care Foundation and much much more. So today I would like Zainab to build this story for us as to who she is and what does this world look like to her living in St. John's in this very moment. Thank you for coming on the show today, Zainab. Yeah, welcome. <laughs> so Zainab, you know, I'll 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 get right into the most basic question of all tell me about your life growing up well my life growing up few people don't know but i come from a royal family <laughs> in in northeastern part of nigeria uh, my dad uh, was a chief my great grandfather was the chief so when he was old he handed over it's like a like a dynasty is hereditary so my father being the uh, oldest son was crowned the the next chief or the heir so my dad had four wives which uh, here is strange but in africa especially someone who is a traditional ruler or a chief can have up to 30 wives it's not uh, a problem but my dad had four wives so my mom was the third wife i think she was probably my i think my dad married her maybe she was around 15 16 because uh, she's just passed on now too but like sometimes when you see us you think we are of the same age because she gave birth to me at a very young age but uh, being from a big family of course i have a lot of siblings we were exposed to the missionary or western education very early because our grandfather was the first to welcome the european missionaries Uh, and then of course they came or went there with education so uh, i pretty much have my senior brothers my senior sisters already educated <laughs> before i even uh, was born so i went to school of course very early so i finished elementary school high school i got admission to a federal government college which is like a unity school you have to be very fortunate 
to earn that benefit of being in a federal school. So I went to a, a federal government college in Ilorin. So when I finished, I of course went to college and then from there I went to the university and graduated in, my first degree was in BA English. So my life has always been in the academics. So I, I didn't have much time for social life other than maybe during holidays, right from elementary, high school, university, only holidays I can interact with people. And of course, coming from a royal family, a lot of restrictions. There are a lot of things that young people your age can do in the community, but you can't. You are kind of limited because you have to respect your your father's uh, status in the in the community. But it wasn't a bad life because we were protected, we were loved. It wasn't like that was not very wealthy per se, uh, even though he was considered as the leader of the community. But he wasn't wealthy, but not poor. We were rich in terms of values in terms of love and everything we were we were lucky so i i grew up in a very pleasant way restricted but very nice way then when i graduated from the university i taught in a polytechnic i taught uh, business or uh, english communication for business students and then after that i got a job with my former university so i was teaching uh in the university actually i was lecturing before i came here and how i got here was uh, i got a Kamal west scholarship that's how and why i actually found myself in canada i didn't want to come here but i think it was destiny so uh, i applied for the commonwealth forgot about it and then started my phd in uh, the university of joss another university uh, that was where I was doing my PhD because I already had my master's in my original school where I did my first degree or undergrad. I did my master's there as well. But then I started I enrolled in a PhD program in another university after I had applied for Commonwealth but wasn't even thinking about it. So it was when I was in the University of Jaws doing my PhD that the admission or the scholarship award package arrived. <laughs> Canadian Commonwealth Scholarship. I was shocked and I actually didn't want to come, but then some of my friends uh, at the University of Jaws pushed me literally. <laughs> Say, better go and respond because I was supposed to go to the Canadian High Commission and do some stuff, do some paperwork. So and I had to travel to Jaws. I said, no, I'm too busy preparing for my dissertation um, proposal defense. I didn't want to do that. They said, no, this is very important. You're going to Canada. I said, no, not really. But eventually I kind of accepted their their encouragement. So I went to Lagos to the Canadian embassy, filled out some papers, did some stuff, tried to process my visa. They asked me to go and do medical. I went and did medical. And then four months after that, the full scholarship came and everything, my flight ticket, and I didn't have admission. I didn't, I put Memorial University, but I wasn't sure because I didn't have admission in hand. So the Commonwealth, once they awarded me the Commonwealth scholarship, they contacted Memorial and found the admission for me, processed everything and got the admission for me to do my PhD in folklore at Memorial. So, so how did you find out uh, about Memorial itself? Because you moved okay. here in 91. This is uh, before the area of uh, yeah, technology, that's a, per se. Very good question. When I was filling out the Commonwealth application forms, you know, you have first choice, second choice, and third choice. So actually, my first choice was Trinidad and Tobago because Trinidad is, uh, and Tobago is a Commonwealth country. So you, you go by countries first, and then you after that, you, you select schools in those countries. So Trinidad was my first choice. And then Canada was my second. And England, or <laughs> Britain, UK was my third choice. So to fill out or list schools and programs in each of those states, I had to go to our library because in those days there was no internet, you know? So I had to use the Encyclopedia Britannica to read about Canada, to read about Newfoundland, because Memorial University, I found it still in, 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 in that encyclopedia under Canada, under Newfoundland and Labrador. So when I put Memorial University, I had to read more about Canada first. They read more about Newfoundland. Land fishery was booming here and being an island, then Memorial University was indicated as the university here. And then in terms of courses, I found folklore which was my area of interest. That's actually why I put Memorial University, because 
in Canada also Laval, they have a folklore department, but it's in French. So I didn't put Laval, I put Memorial University. So Canada, in terms of country, as my second choice, in terms of school, in Canada, I put Memorial University because they have a PhD in folklore. So I just did that and submitted. So that's how I found out more about Memorial, about Canada, about Newfoundland, about Memorial University. So Zena, when, when we first met, which would have been sometime after 2008, because that's when I moved to St. John's, I, I recall seeing you at a lot of events that involved cultural performances or the presentation of cultural cuisine. So mm-hmm. what would I have been seeing you participate in uh, was it the Tombola festival or was it something uh, that was a precursor to that? Okay, when I graduated, I kept teaching at Mon, but then I had the opportunity to do stuff outside of Memorial. So I was doing in addition to that. So I joined Multicultural Women's Organization. So I joined that group as uh, their first as a board member. Then uh, one year after that, I was hired to be the event coordinator. So I was uh, the one that worked with the board and the others to organize multicultural, like we call it international food and craft fair. So we were, we started with uh, having it at the Holiday Inn and then it grew, it expanded. We got funding support from both the federal government and then the provincial government through uh, the then Office of Immigration and Multiculturalism. So we started, we expanded, we, we were doing it in St. John's, in Ganda, and in Cornerbrook. So the one at the Holiday Inn is the one that was prominent. A lot of students at Mon. So we were doing that at those three locations. That went on until 2012, uh, when we decided to, or the board decided that it was getting too big and was getting harder to manage. So uh, I decided to take over and I registered it as a, as a business and made it as an international food and craft expo. So I continued to do it at the Holiday Inn and then in Paradise and then St. John's and then TBS in Kellogg's. So the same format with the former international food and craft fair that was being, being managed by multicultural women's organization, but just different management. I made it a, a business that I was kind of uh, owning at the time. So that's probably where you saw me. That was before Tombolo. Uh, and then in 2011, Tombolo started in 2009 by a couple they live in Admiral's Cove, Andy and Nikki. They are the ones who started Tombolo in Fairyland. Just a way to, to help uh, newcomers, uh, new immigrants, new Canadians to experience culture or life around the bay, like outside of St. John's. So they were doing it in Fairyland at the Arts Council and they would bus uh, new Canadians from here to go and uh, perform their music, their dance and do some art display. And I was the caterer, that was how, and by then I was at the farmer's market. So the farmer's market is another thing that I decided to join primarily to learn more about the community and to showcase my own culture because the farmer's market, when we started day one at the Masonic temple, I went with a little few African food. I think I remember rice uh, and then moi moi and then chickens or something like that. Just three dishes. That first market, I sold everything. <laughs> so I was multitasking. I was still teaching at one. I was <laughs> so I said, oh, and it was supposed to be every Saturday at the Masonic Temple. So I went in the next Saturday with the same food and I sold out. So that's another thing too. So I will leave the farmer's market now because you've known me for the farmer's market that I've now retired from. So the Tombolo one, I was just catering at first, 2009 up to 2011. I was catering for that Tombolo in Fairyland. But then the couple, they decided to also abandon it. They decided to stop because getting big and that wasn't their pet project. So I asked them, I said, can I take over? Just as I did with multicultural, as if, as if I'm someone that takes over stuff. <laughs> so they said, oh, sure, we really would be happy if you can continue with it. So I took over and registered it formally as a non-profit, incorporated it, and then it became a non-profit. And then we continued in Fairyland for two years. But then I realized that 
a lot of the people who go to Fairyland are from St. John's. So I said, okay, maybe we should do it both in Fairyland and in St. John's so that people in other parts of the Avalon who are close to Fairyland can go to Fairyland. But then those from St. John's who normally go to Fairyland, they don't have to go there. Let's do it at the Arts and Culture Center. So I, we partnered with the Arts and Culture Center as, uh, as our community partner. And of course, I started applying for funding with the federal government. So from the start, then Tambolo started growing. To my surprise, the one here started growing very fast to the point that we had to abandon uh, the one in Fairyland. Because it was uh, one getting saturated and also uh, it was, this one was getting too big to handle, uh, to manage both of them. So I just concentrated on the, the Tambolo in St. John's for, for some years. But now, of course, we are in Ganda, we are in Conception Bay, and we are in St. John's with, with Tambolo. Stay tuned, and after this break, we will continue this conversation with Zainab Jarrett. Volunteering. It can begin with the simplest of gestures. A gift of time, energy, commitment. Something precious that grows stronger with every hand that touches it and grows across communities and through the very fabric of our nation and begins once again with the simplest of gestures. To Canada's six and a half million volunteers, thanks. A message from Volunteer Canada, the Government of Canada, and this station. You are listening to Global Frequencies. Diverse province, diverse voices. Welcome back to Global Frequencies in our edition on International Women's Day. And here's the conversation that's unfolding with Zainab Jarrett, Executive Director at We Care Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. So one simple Google search of your name brings up a couple of articles which point us in the direction towards We Care Foundation and your work with respect to education and empowerment of young children in Nigeria. So please tell us more about that. Okay, uh, with We Care. We Care came to the scene after those uh, Chibok girls were kidnapped. You remember those girls who were kidnapped by Boko Haram militants? So that was actually the cause of Wiki Foundation or the reason why we created Wiki Foundation. All along, I didn't know. I, I, I knew about Boko Haram because it actually prevented me from going home. Since I came to Mon, uh, to, to Newfoundland, I used to go home every two years. But the last time I went home was 2007. My second, my, my next trip was supposed to be 2009. And then that was when Boko Haram struck. So they were kidnapping people, especially women, burning schools, burning churches. But those girls were kidnapped in 2014, which was like in the fifth year of Boko Haram operating in northeastern Nigeria. So when the girls were kidnapped, I didn't know about it, but my friend here, they lived in Nigeria as aid workers. He was, he was uh, he's now a retired medical professor here, but he was in Nigeria with his wife as a doctor working in hospitals. So he knew those places, like he knew a lot about northeastern Nigeria. So he came to our house and said, did you hear about the Chibok girls? I said, what happened? She said, oh, Bobo Haran kidnapped close to 300 girls. And it just happened that that Chibok, even though my language is Bura, Chibok is a language that is similar to Bura, to my language. And those girls, some of their uncles and their fathers, we went to the same university. So I knew the parents of the girls. So when I heard it, I was really shocked and saddened and I felt very guilty. So I didn't know what to do. Uh, prior to that, we were sending money a little bit for refugees, to for them to feed refugee people because some of the refugees, they were seeking refuge in churches or in public places. So we'll send a little bit through my sister and they will buy food and distribute in the refugee camps. So when the girls were kidnapped, I was helpless, but very stressed out. So the minister for St. Augustine's Anglican Church at the time was aware of the situation in Nigeria. So one day he asked me, he, he said, how are you doing? So I said, not good. I said, please, we need help. We need I, not money. I just said like thoughts and prayers, you know what? Because I was helpless. So he said, hmm, I think uh, thoughts and prayers would not solve this problem. Why can't you 
do fundraising to see if you can raise some money to send home. So I said to myself, mm, to do fundraising, I have to create an organization that I can legally work under to fundraise or get any help that I needed. So that was how I came home, discussed with my husband, and then we uh, decided to create Wikia Foundation. So we came up with the name, designed and made up, uh, like created like the concept, the mandate and everything. So I registered with the Federal Canada Revenue Agency as a non-profit and incorporated with Newfoundland and Labrador uh, Registry of Companies as incorporated uh, non-profit organization. So with that, we were able to organize like uh, multicultural food and concert, like dinner and concert as a way to fundraise. And people started, of course, reading the story of the girls. And then I was lucky, CBC joined, CBC right from the beginning, actually, they wanted to carry the story. So people were just buying tickets if we want to do any fundraising event whether it's concert or dinner people will buy tickets some were actually donating and some groups here and some just donating money for to week here to help so with that we were able to pick because i already had connections there through my university and my former colleagues and classmates so they were there as the agents back home or the people with the contact person so we were able to identify we created application forms here scholarship application forms we send them and ask them to distribute because there were so many refugee camps some are called idp camps meaning that within a community they just run to another neighbor like people here that their village is taken over let's say st john's is taken over they will run to and and seek refuge in let's say perception bay or in in clarinville so oh, they will be so there as idps so internally displaced persons right yes yeah idps inter yeah yeah so the idps too they are technically refugees because they've left their homes or their homes have been burnt they have nothing so we we distributed those scholarship forms looking for girls at first, at later on, boys were included, but girls at first. So the, those in in IDP and refugee camps were able to dis, they were able to distribute this scholarship fund that we sent from here. So we were expecting like five. The first batch that were emailed were about thirty seven. That was scary, and then seventy came in, all completed, and the forms were created in such a way that there's a room for each applicant to tell her story and you could see like i cry easily but uh, one of our board members dr barvington when he read some of them he too he cried like the girls telling us their what they probably something they even tell their parents what they went through so it was hard but at first we were the first scholarship we um awarded were for six girls but shortly after that we were able to award scholarship to uh seven other girls so but in different because three states were affected by the insurgencies gongola adamawa and yobe adamawa and borno state so we we were able to award scholarships to six then seven girls that uh, in two states and then but to cut the long story short now to date now we've we've awarded over 300 scholarships the, the most in, interesting one was uh, in 2018 when a um, transport company, they operate uh, school buses here in, in the Avalon uh, and tow buses as well. So we've been chartering their buses for Tobolo to transport newcomers to Conception Bay or to Ganda. So we knew each other over the years. So one day I said, hmm, because we were getting some donations of material things in addition to money books school supplies so we i called them up uh that's person's uh, transport uh, company and said do you have any school bus that you've retired <laughs> or you are no longer using that i can buy so and mr persons the person in charge he said what do you want to use a school bus for i said ah we want to ship some supplies like books and school supplies to schools and to children in Nigeria. So he said, yeah, there's a bus that is supposed, we are going to retire by June this year. That was in 2018. So he said, I will call you back. 
So he called me, I think two weeks after that, I called him in February of 2018. So he called me back, he said, look, there's a boss and we, you are, we are going to give it to you for free. You don't have to pay for it. And in addition to that, I'm going to work with you because I know all the schools in this, the in this Eastern district, like uh, the like in St. John's Paradise, all these schools here. He knows because they pick drop off kids and pick kids up. He said, I'm going to work with you. We are going to I'm going to get permission from the the English school district to allow us to do uh, school supplies, clothing and toy drive in every school. Just give me time. I was crying. Of course, we were talking on the phone, but I was crying. <laughs> so I said, okay, I was speechless. And I was I thought, I was feeling bad as well, you know? Free boss, and he's going to do all this. He said, yeah, we know the story, and we have kids too. So everyone is feeling for them, for those children in Nigeria. So within, I think, Two, two, three weeks, he got the permission from English school district to allow us to go to, because he had to get permission for, to allow us to go to schools and, and do the food drive. So once he, uh, not food drive, clothing, school supplies and uh, toys. So once he got the permission, he contacted those, he wrote to those schools and they all said yes. So he created a schedule and just sent it to me. He said, okay, on social date, we are going to social school. So elementary schools, high schools, in St. John's, in, in Conception Bay, in, in, in other places. So I said, ah, I will be there. So we did that uh, May, June of 2018. So we got so much stuff, so much that the, the school bus could not even contain. We had to leave some, but to cut the long story short, we shipped that bus filled with the stuff that we collected from children and their parents and the teachers. I was crying each time we are somewhere. It was so cold, but you see like 10 year old, seven year old, all lined up with their bags to, to, to add to the stuff we were collecting every school i was just crying crying tears of joy <laughs> so that was how we sent the bus to nigeria and then from then we've been buying used cars like so far now today i think we've shipped maybe i would say 15 or more we'll buy like uh, minivans sometimes small cars used ones and we fill them up most of the time we fill them up with books because i'm with uh, the canadian university um, cfu the canadian financial university women you should join it's going it's a very good organization so we sell books book sale maybe you've heard about it it's an annual event we sell books so each time there's uh, a book sale usually we all the books are not sold out some are left over so they, they will help me, the ladies, and we will select the books that we think are, are helpful, and then we'll package them. So these vehicles that we've been buying over the years, we normally fill them up with books, and then more clothing, and more school supplies and toys, shipping them. So we've been doing that. Uh, as we are talking now, even today, our, our vehicles, were, one was cleared yesterday, two were cleared last week through the Nigerian customs, filled with books. So we are working on that. So that one, even during the COVID, it didn't stop us. We are still shipping books from here. So it kind of serves two purposes. Uh, mm -hmm. You are giving back to the community in terms of uh, knowledge absorption, but mm -hmm. also the car or the vehicle Mm. use right yeah oh yeah yes yes yeah yeah initially our plan even some of the cars now they are supposed to be sold but like the economy they are covered so people the purchasing power is not there but the plan is for them to sell the cars and then the money generated from or the income or the revenue from the selling the car sales will be used award more scholarships and we are building schools we are building like in 20, 2019, we completed a school uh, a school block, like school, like those that were neglected because of uh, the, the Boko Haram problems. So we built new one, 
we I was in Nigeria 2019. I think that one was completed 2018. And I was surprised that kids will travel as far as five miles to come to that school in order to, to have a place to, to learn. So they, they, they kind of divided into two. So when I was there, I would see some kids, they would come and stay outside. And then the first set of students will be there from like nine o'clock to, to 12. And then another set will come far away, walk to, to this place, and then they will enter the class and start their schooling at two o'clock and close around four o'clock. But now, as we are talking now, we just finished another one. We built another one, it's uh, three classrooms. I, I copied that idea from Curtis Andrews. I don't know if you know him. He's a Newfoundlander, but he built a school in Ghana. So we use, actually, I have to let him know like the format of his own is big and nice. So it's just finished now. Actually, we received the, the final picture of the, the, the school uh, early this week. So uh, yeah, on, on, yeah, over the weekend, yeah. So that's another thing we've been doing as well. And that means more kids now can, can go to school. They won't be learning under the tree anymore. Uh, so that's what we are doing. But to, like now, what we are we are now helping at home here. I don't I don't know if you've seen it on our Facebook page. We we are working in partnership with uh, the Canadian Red Cross. Actually, they are funding it. So since December, we've been providing hot meals, food hampers, and PPE kits to new Canadians, immigrants. Yesterday, we actually delivered food hampers to one international students too. We're supposed to deliver three this week, but because of the weather now, there's a Filipino families. There are one, one family here, two in Mampur. So we, we are not able to do that, but before the end of the week, hopefully we can deliver food hampers for them. Any plans uh, down the line to maybe um, work with the university and provide scholarships to those very students in Nigeria to come here? You know, I've been following. Congratulations, by the way. I don't know why I didn't say that because I I actually liked something on YouTube about you today that the first student Nelson just arrived, right? Because I've been following what you've been doing. So uh, we would love to actually work with you if we can bring even one of those girls. Because I remember the 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 89 girls that we gave scholarships to in 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 2018 they were you know the the chipwa girls were the known were the ones known globally but there have been a lot of kidnapping of school girls so in in february of 2018 110 girls were kidnapped they were they are they were in girls science and technology college so the 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 Boko Haram didn't want that because these girls would be engineers they would be doctors so they went and kidnapped 110 of them. So those that were rescued, we awarded uh, 89 of them scholarships. So if we can bring even one of those girls here, it will change not just the girls, not their families, but the entire community. So I would love I was thinking actually of meeting you so that we'll discuss or we'll contact you so we'll discuss because we here can also chip in absolutely, or we can work absolutely. together. So it yes, be, yes. It would be please. lovely to, to discuss this, um, <laughs> you know, to discuss this, you know, in a, in a, in a conversation, it'd be lovely because your story, this, you know, that actually the school bus reminds mm -hmm. me of a cartoon I used to watch as a child called the magic school bus. Um, which is literally a yellow bus and mm. it's, it's filled with children and they used to go on these magical adventures. And what you have described today is right from fantasy into reality. And I think that is uh, fascinating, would uh, do disservice to describe um, We Care Foundation's work in Nigeria. And uh, this is fantastic and Zainab, thank you so much for sharing this story. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Any, any last parting words about, um, about 
all of this about your story anything we can hear well for me it's just gratitude gratitude and to encourage immigrants especially immigrant women it doesn't matter your age you can let you know that they can contribute to the community not just here which is a good thing too because that reduces this stereotype of uh, immigrants they are here just to freeload or be on government assistance we can contribute so much and immigrants have been com- contributing but also think of people back home it's good to to give back it shouldn't be a, a force it should be something that should be like it's like a joy because sometimes we don't know allah or god brought us here for a reason and one of that reason probably is to be able to reach out those behind at home and leave them up it could be in a small way uh, so that's what probably i would like to encourage our fellow uh, newcomers <laughs> empathy kindness and love i think these are your three principles <laughs> yes. to living a good healthy wholesome life yes. and i i definitely see that uh, invoked in your work. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Thank you for for interviewing on the chat. It's 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 very good. Thank you. Listen to Global Frequencies, a new program celebrating diversity in Newfoundland and Labrador, covering topics pertinent to the diversification of the province, multiculturalism, immigrant businesses, anti-racism, integration, economic growth, and more. Every second Wednesday, 7 p.m. on CHMR 93.5 FM and on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Google Podcast. This program is presented by the Association for New Canadians and CHMR 93.5 FM with funding from Community Radio Fund of Canada, Atlantic Canada's Opportunities Agency, and the Office of Immigration and Multiculturalism. Global Frequencies. Diverse province, diverse voices. You are listening to Global Frequencies. Diverse province, diverse voices. A few years ago, I was volunteering at 93.5 CHMR FM's radio station at Memorial University. And that's where I met Sarojini Ram Narayan Lang. And she was the host. Then she is still the host of Caribbean Connections. And we bonded so well. We've been exchanging pleasantries and messages that involve a lot of emojis, especially the sunflower and the kitties and the hearts. And, um, you know, I, I figured it would be fascinating to know her story growing up in Guyana, migrating to various cities in Canada before making St. John's her current place of stay. And I think... Everyone listening to this show will really enjoy this as much as I did. This is Sarojini for you. In conversation with me is Sarojini Ramnarayan Lang, who many in St. John's has have heard extensively on radio, and I'll tell you more about that. Sarojini, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nabila. It is my pleasure, and thank you for having me. The pleasure is all ours. Now, Sarojini, we want to know, you know, your sort of insightful and very exciting journey with growing up in Guyana and then migrating to Canada and various places in Canada. And before we get started, Sarojini, tell us about Guyana. Where is it and what can we know? Thank you, Nabila. That's a good place to start, actually, because outside of large cosmopolitan places, people would ask, oh, uh, where is that? Or I've heard of it. And then they would say, oh, do you mean Ghana, like in Africa? So, of course, I would love to be associated as well with a beautiful country like that. But to set Guyana apart, uh, the full name, formerly British Guyana, or some Brits say British Guyana, and it is now known as the Cooperative Republic of Guyana. The total square kilometers is 214 and a bit. It is located 
and many of you know some of South America's uh, map. It's on the northern South American section, bordered by Venezuela, Brazil, and Suriname, with the North Atlantic as its northern coastline. Population now is 782,766. The nationality is known as Guyanese. The literacy rate is actually 98.8% in Guyana. The uh, ethnic groups are Indian 50%, African 36%, Amerindians, which is indigenous 6%, mixed 7%, white and Chinese 1%, religions, Christian 50%, Hindu 35%, Muslim 10%, and others 5%. So that's a bit of the main, um, I guess, what you call stuff or historical aspects. Actually, the judicial uh, system is uh, the Supreme Court, and it's consisting of the Court of Appeal, High Court, and Magistrates Court. So for the historical enthusiasts. (laughs) So these are like your sort of basic demographic indicators of Guyana. Is there anything else? Actually, I did a lot of of, you know, reading up and refreshing courses here when you asked me to come on Global Frequencies because, you know, we forget things and it's been many, many years since I left Guyana and I know we'll talk more about that. But one of the things I'd like to share with uh, your listeners and our friends is the name Guyana is an Amerindian or indigenous word and it means land of many waters. It's the only English speaking country on the continent of South America and it's the Caribbean southernmost state surrounded by three neighbors and I said you know Spanish speaking Venezuela Portuguese speaking Brazil and Dutch speaking Suriname many people have said that Guyana provides their link to the English speaking world and you know we considered ourselves people sometimes say to me oh but you're in south america you're far from the caribbean sea and you're not anywhere near the islands well we feel we are because as part of the british west indies and as part of the colony we consider ourselves part of the british uh, west indies and we associate uh, more culturally economically, even in our cuisine, and even the makeup of our religions, as I've just stated, very much like the Caribbean, and in particular, Trinidad and Tobago. So you grew up in Guyana. Correct. A good part of your life. Mm-hmm. Walk us through that journey. What was it like? Well, growing up, first of all, my forefather, forefathers came from India. They emigrated. Uh, the Indian migration to Guyana and the Caribbean occurred in 1838. It started in 1838. And I am fourth generation. But interestingly, on my paternal side of the family, my great-grandmother came from India directly. And on my maternal side, I, that would be the third generation. So it depends on how old the ancestry is that you're looking at. So I am of Indian ancestry. I am four generation. My religion uh, was first Hindu, but in Guyana, historically, when Indians were operating, operating businesses in the city, in order to be prosperous, I was born in the time when Guyana was still a colony of Britain. We became independent in 1966. So back then, in order to prosper, you needed to be Christian, whether it's Anglican, Catholic, Presbyterian, or Lutheran. My family will baptize all of us in the Lutheran denomination. So I grew up in the Lutheran church with that religion. However, uh, many of my cousins remained uh, Hindus or Muslims, and we would go to many of their religious uh, festivities. Um, We had excellent schooling at the time 
it was still under British rule, so a lot of things remained in place. So the standard of education was very high. And back then, many people went to Great Britain to, to continue their studies, to become professors and lawyers and doctors and writers, like in the case of the late great Nobel laureate V.S. Naipaul. He went to East Trinidadian. Indian Trinidadian of Hindu ancestry, went to the UK to study, became a writer. So back then, many folks were going there and many were coming back to teach and work in Guyana. Unfortunately, um, the, the, the country changed hands in politics several times and due to economic and political tensions and riots and all of that, there, there was a mass exodus of people back in the late 70s and, and 80s, my family included. So unfortunately, dad had to start selling out his many businesses. And we sort of had to leave quietly because back then, if people knew you were going, you had to fear for your life. So we did everything very quietly. We all came abroad, continued um, our education, and then my folks would go back and forth to try and start selling out um, businesses. And then our life uh, continued here in Canada. So you mentioned that uh, your family had to start um, moving out. So tell me about that time. Where, uh, where was, the, where was the, you know, what was the first place? Many Indians left Guyana and many folks as well back in the 60s, but mainly to study and for a better life. But back in the 70s, it was more, you were more forced to leave. It was uh, the, econo the economic disparities, the gap was becoming so wide that crime increased, you know, uh, murders were on the rise. People literally feared for their lives every day, day in and day out. So my family made that very difficult decision to leave. And, you know, when you have um, an established business, a uh, big family established, that was a very difficult decision to make. But we saw the problems. We saw the fear in people's eyes when they would talk about, oh, tonight, I don't know what's going to happen. And we, as well, we were included. Um, but it wasn't because Guyana was a bad place. There were many bad things going on on the political uh, on the political landscape that made the country so unsafe. Now things I have to report, thankfully, things are a lot, lot better. So many of us who can afford it decided Canada and the United States, it was usually Great Britain at first that many folks would come to, but Canada and the United States were um, big destinations. And I'd like to read just a couple of lines here um, from a book called From Pillar to Post, the Indo-Caribbean Diaspora uh, by one of my uncles, Frank Birbal Singh. And in it, he said, after slavery was abolished in 1838, 34, close ties continued between Nova Scotia and the West Indies. Trade flourished in fish, livestock, lumber, rum, molasses, and salt. Commercial and cultural links between Eastern Canada and Nova Scotia in particular and the West Indies stimulated interest in some form of political union between Canada and some West Indian islands. And he goes on to say that uh, these established links made it commonplace for West Indians to study and live in Canada the Canadian-Caribbean connection had become a fait accompli. So that kind of sums it up how we ended up here. So uh, when did uh, you and your family move to Canada? Late uh, 70s, uh, 1978. And where did you move to? First, of course, Toronto, the one of the most popular ports at the time of entry. Um, we only stayed there for a short bit and then we uh, my dad uh, decided uh, 
he would rather open up his own business than work for someone because he had all this experience behind him. So whatever uh, funds he could have brought out of the country at the time, they were very restrictive on that because the government's intent was to keep people here. So they made um, the currency very low when you were leaving, but whatever we could, he decided he would have to go to a part of Canada that we could afford to buy a business and a home. And that ended up being Saskatchewan. So we all moved there, um, except for my two older siblings who were already in Toronto and was establishing a life at the time. So tell so, me about your life in Saskatchewan. Well, we didn't even, <laughs> it's funny, we had never heard of Saskatchewan. To be honest, never. The first question I asked my parents, is this close to Toronto? My dad goes, somewhat. You know, he didn't want to scare us. So anyhow, we um, embarked in the adventure. And my dad didn't want to tell us too much because he knew we would say, we're staying in Toronto. We don't know this place. It sounds too barren. But in many ways, I'm glad I did go because it was small enough to kind of start out a new life. The international community was not as large as it is now there and definitely not as diversified as in Toronto. So we did feel isolated at first. I felt more welcomed and more at home when I started university a year later. The small international community that was there, we became very tight and closely knit. And we all knew each other's comings and goings, whether you're from the Caribbean, Africa, India, Australia, even Russia or Europe, we all became very closely knit. And we saw each other as brothers and sisters and develop a kinship. And then I began to really feel welcome there. Very cold winters, minus 40 was nothing. Minus 60 with a wind chill. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, we have to go through this because don't forget, Guyana is a very tropical place and the climate is hot humid and it's moderated by the northeast trade winds and there's only two rainy seasons may to june and may to november to mid-january and here we are minus 40 minus 20 but we managed we, we became friends with um the saskatchewanites and some a lot of folks from the community international community and i spent six years there um, going to a bit of high school, then university. And then I met my husband at university. We got married there and then we came back to Toronto. So what did you and your husband study? My husband was in the Faculty of Science. I was in the Faculty of, um, I guess, Arts. I studied Economics and Business. And he studied, uh, he was in the Faculty of Sciences. Uh, in particular, wildlife biology. He got um, an NSERC scholarship. We couldn't turn it down. I was accepted at the University of Toronto to start a doctorate program, um, particularly in ornithology. And so we grabbed the opportunity and we came in the 80s. Toronto was flourishing and jobs and everything. And uh, we saw it as a way to better ourselves. So then, um, you know, again, you are sort of starting a new life in Toronto. Um, how was this part of your journey similar or different from that in Saskatchewan? It was certainly at first more exciting, I have to say. I, when I arrived in Toronto, I just felt like the world was my oyster. I saw such a diversified group of people and everyone was, as I like to say, hustling. And you felt that you could make it. And this is a feeling I didn't get in Saskatchewan because we were, um, I think I would say more surviving. But after six years, I had learned so much on how to live in Canada 
and how to deal with the climate, the people learning uh, English in a different way, and all of this. That when I came to Toronto, I was now ready to hustle and build a new life for myself and my husband. And we were very close again with the university community. We lived in an area where um, most of the folks uh, were in residence uh, going to university. Um, it was families who had come to do the same thing we did, either with kids or without. So I just felt that, wow, I could really do something with my life here. And so I started hustling too, you know, taking um, more courses, applying for better jobs, uh, getting involved in the community, not only in the Caribbean, but in the university community and on residence where we live, just trying to make a home for, for myself and, and my husband and I. And then, um, of course, uh, Toronto was still not your permanent base because then eventually uh, you and your family moved to St. John's. So what prompted that decision this time? Well, after 25 years, we had seen and experienced so much we had a one-in-a-lifetime opportunity to live right downtown near the campus in an area called, at the time we started, the prime location in all of Canada, the most expensive location back then. We were faced with theaters, cinemas, the best restaurants, the cheapest restaurants with the best foods, shopping, of all levels, from the most expensive to getting a two-for-one deal. And we experienced so much, the ge geography, the um, beauty of uh, Southern Ontario and beyond, hiking, skiing, um, you know, canoeing, everything, you name it, going to so many concerts for free, you know, right in the open. And at one point, I, I was like, well, what now? And um, back in the 90s and early 2000s, uh, jobs started to become quite difficult for uh, biologists, you know, and they were there, but scarce. So my husband had, you know, um, established himself as a known biologist in that line of work. And he had been offered a position here by the company whose uh, headquarters were in um, King City, Ontario. And uh, he decided to come down. We checked it out. He was already flying back and forth for offshore work, doing environmental impact assessments with the oil and gas industry. So he had begun to love the place for its beauty and the ocean and the cliffs and the views and everything else about it. And I wanted to experience it, but I wanted to see it first. So I came a couple of times and I'm like, you know what, maybe we're ready for a change. And the hardest part was telling the kids, you know, uh, my daughter was 14 at the time, Matt was seven, they had their friends, we have our family there and we're going to just uproot ourselves to come to this island <laughs> in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean where we don't know anyone, no one at all, right? So then uh, walk me through uh, that time when you did, you know, move here and had to settle down. Um, well, we had come before and bought a house. We did get a, a beautiful view of Conception Bay South. And after coming from a city of and the GTA, you know, areas for with five point something million, I was ready for a bit of quiet. I really was. I had worked in the finance industry for over three decades at the time in in various industries, uh, banking, film and television, uh, computers, hotel, restaurant, and you name it. And, and I was ready for a little change of pace. 
And we said being near the ocean would really be helpful. Uh, Guyana, most of it is inhabited along the coast. So that brought me back to my days back home. And once we found a house that we liked in an uh, environment and community that would be um, great for the children from the point of view of schooling, uh, we want to have the right amenities. We looked at all of that, the right community services. We thought, hey, we can do this. And it was quite lonely at first, though, because there was really no one to speak with in person, except for the odd parent at my kid's school. But over time, we adjusted. I took some time off work, and then I went back, and then things began to fall into place. But it did take a while, Nabila. At one point, I thought, maybe we should just go back, <laughs> you know? But I was of the mindset, we have to give this a try. If I can move from a tropical country to Saskatchewan and go through minus 20 and minus 40 and minus 60 degrees winters for six years, I can do this. So we tried to build a life. And, you know, they say it's all about a state of mind. And I began to think that this is now my home. Yes, Toronto will always be there. We could always go back. It's not going anywhere. But we have to focus on making this our home. And so the journey started, really. So, you know, as we start kind of wrapping up, describe your experience in Saskatchewan in three words. Cold, fun, and interesting. How about Toronto? Wow, hustle, exciting. And now Newfoundland. Comfort, culture, and peace. Thank you so much for uh, sharing all of this, Sarojini. I appreciate oh, it so much. Thank you, Nabila. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today, folks. We hope you enjoyed episode nine with its theme on International Women's Day. We were in conversation with Zainab Jarrett and Sarojini Lang. Fascinating stories, for sure. If you would like to be a part of our show and have an interesting story to share, contact us and email us at global frequencies at ancnl.ca or simply search for the association for new canadians on google and you will find those details there as well until next time signing off have a lovely weekend everyone thank you for listening to global frequencies diverse province diverse voices this program is presented by the Association for New Canadians and CHMR 93.5 FM with funding from the Community Radio Fund of Canada. The ANC is a non-profit community-based organization dedicated to the provision of settlement and integration services for immigrants in the province for over 40 years. CHMR FM is an award-winning community radio station operating out of Memorial University. The station has been broadcasting a range of music, spoken word, and cultural programming since 1987. If you would like to touch base with us, email us at globalfrequencies at ancnl.ca.